All right, Rich, thanks for coming on. Hey, absolutely, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. All right, let's jump right on in. So tell us a little bit about what you've been doing over at Evolution. So what I've been doing, you know, quick background on myself, I cut my teeth in the industry on the carrier side for about six years working for a large national carrier. And I had an opportunity to join Evolution and really focus on helping a group transition to the self-funded model versus being fully insured. And that's something to me that was really intriguing. And over the last year, you know, I've spent a lot of time um, working with consultants all over the state of Texas and in some other areas of the country to really just drive some education and really awareness of what self-funding or partially self-funded looks like and how it can actually make a difference as you move down market. Yeah. I don't think I've ever asked you, but or asked anybody for that matter, what it's like kind of working for a large carrier. How did they think about things? I've never really heard how they think about these small to mid-sized employers. I think there's there's good people with good intentions. Yeah. What I, I do believe, though, is when you're a publicly traded organization, at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of buzzwords and fiduciary responsibility is one of them that, you know, the carriers outside of, you know, one that's, you know, quote unquote, not for profit, right? But most of them are publicly traded. And so they have to, at the end of the day, um, do what's best for their their shareholders. And so I do think that you have people who want to make the right decisions I mean, they care about the employers and the employees they serve, but there's still a profit um, maximization process going on that's behind the scenes as well. And I I think that, uh, you know, sometimes that can be kind of challenging. Yeah, I, I can see why. So you're helping employers go from that model to to self-funded what does that look like from your perspective like who are you guys working with uh and what are some of the things you guys are doing yeah so that's a great question you know i tell you that you know we have the ability to work with um you know over 20 different stop loss carriers and you know we consider ourselves first and foremost a, a health care plan that's built on a tpa chassis and what i mean by that is we kind of coordinate all of the best components of the healthcare plan, whether it's networks, um, think of like the Cygnas, the Aetnas of the world, or even reference-based pricing, you know, negotiating stop loss, PBM, advocacy tools, transparency tools, and kind of bringing it all together in a seamless platform. You know, what we don't see a lot of from the big carrier model is the willingness to let you be flexible, especially in the 100 to 1,000, 100 to 500, or yeah, 100 to 500 space. And so that's kind of where we specialize. Uh, we employ underwriters on staff who are all ex-TPA guys to really negotiate with the market. So it's not just a quote coming from a quote desk and where you're throwing a wet mm-hmm. noodle at the wall and hoping it sticks really like what's the story behind it why are we transitioning them and what are we going to do to help um change the utilization and in the behavior versus this whole mentality of what we'll just keep changing carriers year after year and hoping everything levels out yeah as far as changing behavior let's go into that for a second uh what are some some things that you've seen i guess cfos get behind that for a willingness to change, that's step one. But 
what things have you seen that are really helping control costs or that are a little more creative from your traditional carrier? Uh, first and foremost is a transparency tool. You know, I'm a firm believer. And I think the industry who looks at self-funding from a third-party administrator perspective as firm believers, and you got to give uh, employees tools to make the right decision. And so, you know, you think of like a healthcare blue book where you can look up procedures and see what the fair price is and just the, you know, cost and quality. That's number one. Um, and then also just different ways to source. When you have PPO networks in place, you know, there's only certain, you have limitations on what you can do. But, you know, when you think about like pharmacy spend, I think that there's a lot of chatter around, you know, importing drugs from tier one countries, sending people to different places, you know, taking this um, conversation of, you know, chasing rebates and, and sourcing the drug for the lowest price, but still having the flexibility to get your members uh, the medications when they need it. Yeah. As far as the transparency tool, are you guys using like a healthcare blue book or is it something totally different or is that internal? Uh, it's, it's healthcare blue book is generally who we partner with. Yeah. Nice. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, they have like, you can sign on today just as a member, anybody can do this, um, and search some stuff, but there's different information that's being hidden for like a paid version or am I totally making that up? No. So you can generally, uh, so when you have the paid version, you can actually um, access, well, you could look up spinal fusions. And down here in Austin, Texas, you know, the price range, you know, I'm going to be a little bit off here, but it could be from, you know, 20,000 to 100,000. But it's not only about the prices, they actually aggregate the quality data as well. And so very simple for members to understand green, yellow, red, and you can see with the check mark of, hey, it's a higher quality, um, you know, it's a green check mark, but then maybe their cost is a little bit higher. So you want to find that balance of, you know, the stop sign that's green for price and then the check mark for quality as well, because it's about finding the best price with the best quality. Yeah, I, mean, I could do your knee replacement for you, but you probably don't want that. Yeah, I don't think I want you doing that. <laughs> Going into PPO networks, can you, I don't think a lot of people understand exactly how those work. Can you shine some light on exactly how these networks operate? You know, to tell you the truth, I don't really know how they work either. I know there's a lot of shadow um, price negotiations being done. And the biggest thing that I would tell you is, as our industry over the last 30, 35 years has really evolved. I mean, 30, 35 years ago, we had indemnity, right? I mean, members could really go wherever they wanted from a healthcare provider perspective. And then it evolved into the HMO plans and then into the PPO. So everybody believes you got to have this like network on logo on your card. And, you know, you have carriers preach discounts, discounts. We have the best discounts here, but it's always off of a fictitious number, which is the build charge. Yeah. Um, and, and most Carriers have different list prices at different um, at different providers. So, what I mean by that is, when in my prior life we would run repricing reports against other carriers, and our discount percentage would be within a couple points of each other. But we knew, like, if we dive into the details, you know, our repricing, we might pay you know twenty five percent more for an MRI at a given 
facility versus another carrier. And, you know, I think that there's just, again, there's just no transparency around it. And that's why I think you see a lot of movement behind the whole reference-based pricing. I don't know if you saw that video Dr. Bricker shared yesterday about the hospital CFO that was speaking pretty frankly. I went in and watched that and he was saying that I think they oversee something like 40 hospitals and each one had like its own charge master, different rates. They had no idea what things actually cost. And it was all about this cost accounting and things like that. Super boring topic, I know, for most people, but it was pretty interesting from his perspective. Absolutely. You know, I love Dr. Brickard's videos. I wish I um, had time to watch them every single morning, but I'll go back and uh, he does a lot of really cool things and just, I think, sheds a whole different uh, set of lights on our industry and just tries to educate the masses. But the, the PPO network conversation, uh, it, it's definitely frustrating from the aspect is there is no transparency around it. And you're at the mercy of what the carriers kind of are looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Without his videos, I don't know if I would have learned near as much. Uh, so going into pharmacy spend, I know that's a hot topic that you see a lot of. What are some of the things you guys are doing in that space? Yeah, so one of the things that we're doing is, uh, you know, we source um, some maintenance medications, brand name that they would get going to their local CVS, Walgreens, wherever today. Um, from a tier one country, think of like Canada, the UK or Australia, where they kind of have the same rigorous standards as we do for dis dispensing medications. And we're seeing savings of 30, 40. I mean, there's some medications upwards of 90%. Uh, one big one, and, and they're all, the, again, the name brands that you see on, on mm -hmm. TV, the Zelljans, the Oteslas, Jardiances of the world. Um, Humira, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, well, so Humira. It's what's unique about that one is because it's, I believe, temperature controlled. We have to source that a little bit different way. So we do some international or medical tourism, um, where members would go travel for a couple days to get their medication. They could potentially go up to three to four times per year, but the incentive for them to use either our mail order program or our uh, tourism program is. Their employer is going to pay 100% of that cost and travel and everything would be included on the tourism piece because the savings are that they're that large yeah, versus that's sourcing it domestic domestically. Yeah, it's crazy that an employer can send somebody to California or a different country for two days to buy prescriptions and that's still being cheaper than them going to their local pharmacy. Uh, yeah, and that's where I think a lot of the you know the heartache is. Um, we've had some really good success stories um, recently where members, you know, they're they were paying five hundred dollars for a month for their medication. Well, they're not going to pay that five hundred dollars a month anymore because we're going to mail order that medication to them now every ninety days. And when you hear those success stories, I think it kind of just it makes you feel like really good that you are making a difference. Yeah. Um, along those lines, uh, what advice do you have for like a CFO or an employer that's frustrated with healthcare and benefits in general? Oh, where to man. begin? Yeah, no, that's honestly, that's a great question. I tell them first, they're not alone in feeling that way. Uh, but also don't ever think that there isn't a better pathway 
again, I worked on the carrier side myself and I saw how most companies contain their costs. And it was raised deductibles, out-of-pockets, higher co-pays, and really cost shift back to the employee and give them a pay decrease year after year. And it maybe works for a year or two, but it's also the definition of insanity, right? I mean, they're doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result. You know, ask your consultant to bring you something different that could make a difference, not just another spreadsheet. Um, And just remember two things. You know, a claim is not a claim. You can almost always find a better way to control costs on a specific claim. You think about the RX that we were talking about. And then the premium pie, it never gets smaller. So when you hear carriers that are getting aggressive, they're still generally increasing the size of the pie. And, um, you know, you have a carrier that got aggressive two years later, you're looking down the barrel of a 30% increase. And then you've got a, um, a competing carrier coming in at 50% above current. Well, that pie just grew by 15% at the bare bones minimum. Right. And yeah. just imagine if that happened every year, which we do see, I yeah. mean, their costs double almost every five years and the employer employee are the only one that really lose in that situation. I mean, you see some employers that are call it lower margin businesses in general, uh, I guess, getting more creative, going to a reference based pricing model. Uh, but you also see a lot of employers that, I mean, this is very hands on a ton of work. Like, do you see more, uh, call it higher margin businesses finally getting frustrated enough to really get in the weeds? Are we not there yet? I guess, what is your perspective on that? I think it all depends on the leadership of the organization. We transitioned a group that was from a fully insured plan to reference-based pricing. A lot of it was driven by the leader of that organization had a bad experience at an out-of-network ER for someone in their family, got balanced, billed an absurd amount. Mm -hmm. And then he read um, Marty McCary's book, The Price We Pay. And really started diving into healthcare and said, you know what, we're going to do something different. Now, we've had some bumps along the way because anytime you go from fully insured with these large PPO networks where everybody's in network to a reference-based pricing, and we did put in a physician-based plan, you still get some pushback from the provider office. Um, But I do think you're starting to see it more, but I don't know if we're full scale yet just because... They don't want the noise, I think, that's associated with it when it, it's not really painting them yet. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, you hit on it there, but can you kind of shed some light for somebody that might not be familiar with reference-based pricing? I mean, going from fully insured to RBP is a big jump. Most people don't go from one extreme to the other, but what is reference-based pricing? So reference-based pricing is reimbursing either the provider, so the physician, or the facility portion of the claim based on Medicare and then plus a certain percentage. So some of the partners that we work with, their average reimbursement is around 140 to 150% of Medicare. So they're getting what Medicare would have paid for that um, procedure plus an additional 40 to 50%. And sometimes that goes a little higher. Sometimes it goes a little lower, um, but it's it's basing the pay uh, for that provider um, 
on what's actually submitted and a fair reimbursement versus a negotiated charge like we talked about with with carriers and PPO networks that's on um, kind of subsidizing everybody and what's going to be best for that, you know, that carrier and that doctor or based off of a discount. So they'll inflate like in a PPO network, for example, you know, they'll inflate the bill charge to say that their discounts 80% or 75%. Mm-hmm. Well, if we just base it off of Medicare plus and actually being able to review claims to make sure that there's no errors and codes, that's generally more advantageous for an employer, but there is noise around it because providers don't see that PPO logo on the card. So they're not in network, if you will. Yeah, they're not going to get the the rates of the PPO. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, obviously there is a lot of noise, especially at first, especially going from a fully insured arrangement. When done correctly, can you kind of shine some light on what that looks like with the attorney groups and say an employee gets a giant bill, what what happens next? They get a balance bill. Yep, absolutely. So first and foremost, kind of what success looks like. I would tell you that if you if you have an employer or if a client wants to look at reference-based pricing, you I'm a firm believer that we have to have a physician-based network. You know, let's not squeeze the guy who went to medical school for the last 12 years um, out is because we're going to be, you know, tripping over dimes to pick up pennies mm-hmm. at that point. Let's not build the new gold-plated facility. And, you know, let's use reference-based pricing for the facility portion of the claim. I think there's a lot of examples out there that show, you know, why that's actually bad. And then it's working with a vendor um, from a repricing perspective that has experience and that provides legal defense because you are seeing more balanced bills happen and they will, um, you know, they can take legal action against the employee. It's having a provider that just doesn't um, give up and provides true advocacy for the member and the legal defense piece. Yeah, that was, you nailed it. Uh, As far as physician group networks, like say I'm here in Fort Worth, are there some good ones here? Like how is, I guess, call it DFW Austin for these physician group networks as far as clients evaluating going to a reference-based model? Yeah, I would tell you that generally we would look at like a multi-plan and there is, you know, not, not every uh, physician is going to be covered in the network, but yeah. it gives you a strong base of different specialties, primary cares, um, et cetera. And then there's some um, physician-based networks in, in other areas of the country where we have access to as well. So it's really just look, kind of looking at geo access, but giving them some type of access to not receive that pushback when they're trying to go see their primary care doctor. And then in the event that they are, it's having a partner that's flexible enough to kind of call and maybe work out a single case agreement for that individual. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I think of reference base working very well in smaller towns, maybe. But how does it work in your experience in a metro area with uh, a Baylor, a THR, these very large health systems that are centered here, are they very advantageous to it? Do they love it, hate it? 
You know, I haven't had a lot of experience with THR. Um, I know that there's some Baylor's, Scott and White doctors that are not in the multi-plan network. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so some of those can be a challenge. Here in Austin, I mean, uh, Baylor and Scott and White have kind of moved down from the Temple area, you know, which is, you know, about an hour outside of Austin or so and kind yeah. of come down and put this ring around it. But for the most part, we're not having a lot of pushback from the Ascensions or St. David's of the world, you know, the noise is fairly low on that aspect. It's more of just the facility side. And you think of the more specialized um, providers like an MD Anderson, for example, where you have to negotiate a single case agreement because the member wants to go there for their specific situation. Yeah. So, I mean, you get kind of a unique perspective within healthcare. You see the good and the bad of these employer health plans, who's doing what. Uh, what mistakes are you seeing a lot of CFOs making that, that could be avoided? First is buying off of a spreadsheet. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I just think, you know, we've commoditized this industry in the health insurance industry. We have employers that are make, making purchasing decisions of their healthcare plan that costs 700000 a million dollars plus annually off of a spreadsheet and a piece of paper that isn't worth a nickel. Spreadsheeting is a way to visualize costs, but you can't put a strategy on there. And you can't list out every value add that makes a true difference on a spreadsheet. Um, And then second, I don't think enough questions are being asked. I think that some of them just believe what they're told and they don't press enough to ask some of the uh, some of the questions of what else is out there to help us control costs. Yeah, no, I mean, you nailed it. I'm guilty of it as well. So I mean, that's a a great reminder. Uh, Something just kind of popped in my head just because from doing an enrollment meeting this morning, like, are you seeing anything that's creative, call it, between the the watered down, the MEC plans and major medical for, say, an employer that does have hourly staff that's not making more than 12 to 15 an hour? Like, what options would you recommend for a group like that? That's kind of been a frustration that's been on my mind. Uh, you know, I would tell you that you know, it, it might be best to look at an RBP route. Um, if the employer's large enough, there's some carriers and reinsurance carriers that might let you look at, you know, maybe for a management population, you're putting in a PPO network. And then also for the hourly folks, you're, you're maybe looking at an RBP solution. I just think that there's got to be a lot of education, you know, kind of around that, that type of setup. Uh, those those groups are historically a challenge. Yeah. And so anything that you can do about um, maybe just pushing, pushing them to, you know, giving them advocacy tools to where they can call in when they need something done and pushing them to the highest uh, quality and lowest cost providers where they don't have to worry about any kind of balance billing is um, something that's completely viable. It's really putting consumerism back into the plan though. So if you had an employer that had a bunch of lower paid workers and they had to go reference-based pricing, for example, it's going to be important to have like an advocacy team that's going to field those calls from those employees to help guide them in that process. But it is viable for those employers. And I think you're seeing that with the movement that's happening nationally, um, especially around like the health Rosetta and whatnot. 
Yeah, for sure. We ended up moving them to a different mech and kind of adding some benefits there because to I mean, get to even a Cigna plan, it would have been a couple hundred thousand more than what they are currently doing. So it just didn't make sense. But yeah, I appreciate you answering that. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. At a higher level, uh, if you could change one thing in healthcare or health insurance, what would it be? It, number one is transparency. Uh, it's the most frustrating part for me is not having it. I think with any other purchases we make in our lives, transparency, uh, we see what the cost is, just not in healthcare. You know, again, I don't think we ask enough questions or apply the right pressure. Now we are starting to see legislation happen and, and there's a lot of chatter around that. But when you have a good consumer today and they call a provider and ask for the cost of a procedure, the provider usually does what? Answers the question with the question, like, who yeah. do you have for insurance? Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that most people don't understand that the price varies from provider to provider and carrier to carrier. And so we just need more consumerism. And that starts with transparency. And, you know, we're in the only industry, again, where there's no true consumerism. We ask more questions when we buy the HDTV than we do about our own bodies when we have the doctor. I mean, for the most part. Yeah. And in my mind, there's just something fundamentally wrong with that, especially when it's universally known we're facing a, um, a cost crisis in healthcare. Yeah. I mean, as far as the legislative piece, like, are you optimistic about that? It's... I, has anything officially been passed on the transparency front or there's rules and different things like that? It's yeah. It's Honestly, I'm not an expert in yeah. that. I don't think I've seen anything officially be um, passed. I, I know that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I posted on LinkedIn. It had to have been a couple months ago now, whereas the first time I ever uh, saw a commercial where, you know, it was like a doctor and a nurse in a, phys in a, in a waiting room, and they told a member, like, we're closing our doors down or something to that effect. And, you know, I, I it kind of stopped me in my tracks to where it's like I've never seen those types of ads before where you've got, you know, these big, you know, money uh, corporations and physician groups all advocating against showing what the price is. It's almost crazy to me yeah, that the free crazy. market doesn't control it. Yeah, it is a very interesting industry. I mean, also, we had had a previous discussion of how you thought carriers might be moving towards uh, a Medicare for all. Dr. Bricker did a video on it showing where that revenue growth was. Uh, I had a previous guest, Brian Worley, who kind of thought it was going the way of 401k and retirements where employers get out of the business of implementing these plans. Uh, what do you think? I, I don't know if you've thought about it anymore, but I kind of see a mix of both happening in some form or fashion in the next Yeah, I, I definitely 10, agree with that. Yeah. No, I would definitely agree with that. I think that we're going to have a hybrid system. Uh, there's too much chatter around it. I think you have too many people, you know, when the average, you know, person, I think where it's, I think I read something this morning where 40% of Americans don't even have a thousand dollars like in an emergency fund. I mean, that's kind of alarming, especially when your deductibles and out of pockets are, you know, three, four and out of pockets are what can be $7,900 these days. Yeah. I mean, um, deductibles are every bit of five, six, seven thousand. Absolutely. So I think we're going to have a hybrid system. What that looks like of, I mean, anybody's guess is as good as mine. 
I think there's a value in having a private system. You know, I've read some things where Canadians are coming across the border to America to get healthcare coverage and paying cash because the wait times are long over there, mm-hmm. right? When they need care. And so, you know, I also think that um, we're already facing a doctor shortage in the future. And so if we take away the carrot, which is, you know, earning a little bit higher income, but in turn, you have to go to school for a long time. And, you know, there's not free education either, and especially medical education, that if we start paying doctors 60% less, then who's going to want to be a doctor? And, you know, it's, yeah. you're going to have people who still want to be, but not at a, you know, $300,000 of student loans either. Right. And so I think we'll have a hybrid system. I just don't know what that looks like. And I do think carriers are positioning themselves for a Medicare for all and being the administrator for the government. I mean, Dr. Bricker illustrated that where their increases aren't coming from commercial plans. It's from the Medicare side. Yeah. I mean, I saw today Humana was bought a big physician group in Florida, I think it was, and it was all Medicare for that's strictly who they were servicing. Absolutely. Yeah. They are a big one. Obviously they, they cut their teeth in those Medicare advantage plans. Um, and you know, they started really as like, you know, a hospital provider and nursing, um, facilities and then kind of evolved into the insurance side of things. But, you know, they are buying, um, uh, like hospice and, or, you know, the home healthcare providers and stuff, because there's a, you know, there's a big movement around that and, you know, treating somebody in their home versus in a facility. And so I think they, uh, what is it? 10,000 people a day are turning 65 and older or, you know, turning 65. I mean, we have an aging population for sure. And, you know, it makes sense. It sure does. Uh, Along those lines, uh, to kind of jump back to hospitals and health systems and whatnot, um, it, along the lines of Bricker's video yeah, yesterday, I think it was, uh, he talked about health systems getting into implementing their own insurance plans, and that's finally getting them to really start doing this cost accounting and understanding what their costs are. Have you run up against any of that? We don't, at Frost, we don't currently have one of those, a Baylor plan or anything like that. So I have very little experience from uh, hearing consumer feedback. I was curious if you had seen any of those. Yeah, so I've actually gone up in in my prior life. One of my biggest competitors, especially as we moved north of Austin, Colleen Temple, Waco, you know, Central Texas area, there was a... Um, you know, Baylor Scott and White has an insurance plan um, and, you know, they do a, they do a PPO wrap around it for the folks that aren't in the area. But, you know, when you're the insurance carrier and you're the provider, I think you can control costs and see things a little bit differently than what you can if you're a, you know, a United or a Blue Cross and you're sending people to those same facilities. Uh, so that was one of my biggest competitors in those areas where they had a lot of facilities uh, in in terms of like if we're running into them nationally, not so much. It's more of like a regional um, in small pockets of the country. Yeah, I, I wonder how those conversations go. I mean, if it's all within, call it one umbrella, like if a physician is charging four times Medicare and they're now part of the, call it the Baylor Health Plan or whoever, I wonder how the who typically wins those or what those conversations look like. 
You know, I'd be really curious as well to kind of see some stats around it. But you would think that if the physician works for, you know, picking on Baylor, you know, I think Memorial Herman's another one that sells mm-hmm. their own healthcare plan in Houston. If that physician's a part of that group and they're billing a member on that healthcare plan, I would have a hard time believing that the reimbursement going back from the healthcare plan or the insurance product itself is the, you know, standard 225, 250, 300% of Medicare um, of what you see from a PPO network perspective. Yeah, I agree with you there. I don't know if you guys compete against, I guess, employers and PEOs that kind of have a lot of technology around that or if that's predominantly smaller companies, but uh, what are your thoughts on that and kind of consolidating all benefits under one umbrella with fancy technology? You know, I, I think it's there's a market for it for the smaller size cases. I would say under 50, maybe under 100. But I think any time that you're entrusting a technology company to negotiate your health care for you, mm-hmm. um, I just don't think that it's it's smart consumerism. Um, personally, I think you can go source a lot of the great HRIS systems out there, you know, the plan sources, employee navigators, paycoms of the world that do almost everything you need them to do from that perspective, but then still have a robust quality healthcare plan or employee benefits plan that's available. And you're not being again, block rated and then also being held to what they want to offer you versus what fits the needs of your organization and being put in another box. Yeah, you you absolutely nailed that one. So what's the future hold for what you guys are doing at Evolution? Anything big, groundbreaking coming out this year or coming years or just kind of continuing to do what you're doing and getting employers to embrace self-funded? I think a lot of it has to do with um, what we're continuing to do is is chopping down that uh, tree uh, one swing at a time. Um, But we're also doing some really creative things in the future around, you know, like bringing in some technology partners so we can start interacting with members uh, in a little bit different way. Like, for example, today we currently text message members, you know, there's a robocalling epidemic right? Nobody answers the phone anymore because everything's a robocall, but we all text and use um, app-based programs. So we're doing some texting today with members, um, but you know, it's kind of evolving that now to the next step in terms of communicating with them via, you know, different um, app-based programs, um, a little bit more proactive outreach to engage them in a lot of the uh, cost containment tools that we have. And, and then just, um, you know, just continue to drive awareness. It's not about making wholesale changes year one. It's about putting in an actual strategy for three, five, 10 years. That makes a difference. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, we've already hit on it a little bit, but we can end with this one. Any bold predictions on the future of healthcare that you haven't already hit on or would care to elaborate on? You know, I think we're going to see more around um, RX stuff. I think uh, the pharmacy spend is just, you know, the the calendar turns over and the price of drugs just go up, you know, just because it's a new year, right? And we got new new goals to hit. Um, So I think we'll see some more stuff around that. Maybe I'm, I'm hopeful that there can be something mass scale done that it's not so much, I guess, uh, fear around 
people bringing in medications from other countries? Because right now that's the biggest question that we get back is like, is this legal? And it is legal. Um, but you know, like making it more, I guess, uh, grand scale for the, for the members, but you know, that also puts constraints on the supply chain as well, um, in other areas. So it's just kind of figuring that out. That would be, I think the, a big impact for, um, our industry right away, if there could be something done around pharmaceutical. Yeah, that, that would be awesome. Well, Rich, I appreciate you doing this. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Uh, really enjoyed it, Matt. Take care. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthy Conversations with Matt McGee. If you enjoyed the show and want to know more, check us out at hcwithmattmatt.com. Please leave us a review and rating on iTunes, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Matt McGee is an employee of Frost Insurance. All opinions shared by Matt or guests of the Healthy Conversations podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Frost Insurance or Frost Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for insurance, banking, or investment advice. Healthy Conversations is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.